three, two, one. And here we go. Paul Shah, how are you? Is it Shah? Is that how you pronounce it? Is it Shah? It's actually uh, Shardy. Shardy? Okay. What nationality, what nationality so, is that? Um, it's. I think it's actually from the, the slice of Germany and France that keep trading back and forth. This is okay. what I'm told. Yeah, but it's German. My my great-great-great-grandfather's from Germany. Shardy. Okay. Sorry Shari. about that. I, I knew I was going to butcher. I saw the name and I'm like, I guarantee I you I'm going to pronounce this wrong. But anyway. I hear all versions of it. Yeah. Well, anyway, look, hey, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. It does mean a lot to me that you yourself, someone who's extremely busy in the AI world, a former military man, it does mean a lot to me. Anyone who comes on my podcast, it does mean a lot to me that they'll take any time out of their schedule. But could you do me a favor, because I'm terribly bad at introductions, could you kind of introduce yourself, who you are, where you've come from, to me and to my listeners? Sure, Absolutely. Um, well, first of all, thanks for having me on. Very excited to be here. So I'm Paul Shari. I'm the Executive Vice President and Director of Studies at the Center for New American Security. We're a Washington, D.C.-based national security think tank. And my work is focused on defense and technology issues. I'm the author of two books. Uh, my most recent one is Four Battlegrounds, Power in the Age of Artificial Intelligence. And prior to coming to this role at, at the Center for New American Security, I worked at the Pentagon as a policy analyst working on drones and other emerging technologies. And before that, I served as a U.S. Army Ranger in the Army 75th Ranger Regiment, and I did a number of tours overseas to Iraq and Afghanistan. So let's kind of start from the start. And how did you get into the Army Ranger job? Like, how did that start? Yeah, um, well, it was, this will, I guess, date me a little bit for people who want to do the math. So I was in college during the Kosovo War, and I remember I was an engineering major and um, was studying like advanced differential equations and, and, you know, looking at what was happening out in the world. And, um, you know, at the time, the the ethnic cleansing in, in Kosovo and NATO's air campaign. Um, and I just I just felt this very strong desire to do something that just was much more tangibly tied to problems out in the world. Um, you know, I didn't. A lot of my friends were going to work in, you know, consulting and I just, I want to do something that was, I think, much more, um, much more tied to, to problems that were happening. And, and, uh, and I also, I think at a personal level, wanted to do something that was more, more physical, get out from behind a desk and that would challenge myself. I had a friend who at the time was talking about being an Air Force uh, pararescue uh, person, who, you know, jumps out of planes and tries to rescue down pilots. And so started looking into options in special operations. And uh, with the Army, I could sign up with a contract where they would, uh, I enlisted after college, after graduated, and they would put me through a training pipeline. And if I did everything and I didn't quit or get hurt or fail, then I could become an Army Ranger. And that sounded like a pretty good deal to me. And so I signed on the dotted line and, and enlisted for four years right after college. And it, it was great, great experience. Um and I've actually enlisted just before 9-11, so June of 2001. And yeah, so one of my uh, my big fears going into the Army was I would spend four years like cutting grass, sitting on a base. And uh, that did not happen. 9-11 happened when we were in basic training. And um, and then and then things got really busy. And in fact, the unit that I ended up going to, the Army's 3rd Ranger Battalion, uh, jumped into Afghanistan, did an airborne operation, in October of 2001. Now, I wasn't there. I was still in the training pipeline, but I joined them shortly thereafter. They came back and then it was just, you know, go, go, go um, for those four years. It was very busy. 
Because the security at the time, so this is pre-9-11, it was, I mean, you can even look at movies from pre-9-11 and you see the airport scenes. Everything's just really relaxed. Everyone's everywhere. There's no control. But then you look at movies post-9-11 and everything is just so tight. You can really see the difference. So I can kind of understand where you're coming from, where you're going into the army thinking you're going to quote unquote cut grass and then 9-11 happens, you're enlisted, complete opposite. Yeah. And to be clear, my enlisting as a ranger, I wanted to be going out and deploying and doing things. My my fear was that I'd be stuck out of base doing nothing. And uh, that certainly did not happen. Um, but um, yeah, we were, we were, we were busy um, during that, during that time. So what was your specific duty during your time in the military, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, so I was in the infantry. So I um, started out in a rifle squad um, in the in the Army's 3rd Ranger Battalion. I started out carrying, a, uh, for people who you know, follow things, an M203 grenade launcher that you know, hung underneath an M4 rifle in a line infantry squad, uh, moved up to carrying a uh, what the time was the, the squad automatic weapon was an M249, a light machine gun. And then I moved into our sniper section. Um, so was trained as a sniper. I uh, did that role for a while and then ended up my last job with the Rangers was leading reconnaissance team, um, which was just a blast. Like, I mean, just um, we were in Afghanistan at the time and around like 2004 to 2005. And um you know, doing, doing aerial reconnaissance and ground reconnaissance missions and things where we would, um, you know, sort of operate in, in civilian vehicles and clothes and working with, with sources to pinpoint targets before, um, then the, the line units would go in and hit these targets at night and, and do, um, raids to, to capture, you know, suspected terrorists and roll back terrorist networks. So it was just a really amazing, I think, kind of like, job to be doing as somebody, you know, young in my twenties and being able to experience and particularly right after 9-11, kind of the U.S. counterterrorism apparatus that was refined over time um, in, in kind of that, that, you know, in operation, being on the ground and, and kicking doors and, and going on missions. And it was, um, it was very exciting, very rewarding. So your job was basically just to gather intel from the enemy perspective, right? No, we were, I mean, in the infantry, I was basically going on raids and, um, you know, we'd have a target. There, there's some information that there's a, um, you know, uh, some reporting that there's a bad guy in some building and we would drive in by truck or fly in by helicopter um, and and go to a raid and, and capture this person and bring him back for interrogation by the intel folks. Um, when I was on a reconnaissance team, we would go in early and scout out targets. So we would, you know, basically like before there was a raid, we'd go and and either from the air or on the ground, scout the place, take photos, video, come back, and then report to the ground assault team, hey, you know, here's the target. Here's what it looks like. There's a wall outside. You know, here's the main entryway. There's a green door. Um, you know, here's what it looks like. You come up this alleyway so that then when we could do the assault, um, everything went, you know, things always kind of get a little bit chaotic, but, um, hopefully go a little more smoothly, make sure we at least hit the right target, that kind of thing. And then we would usually on the assault, like lead the assault force in. How was that Intel actually gathered? Um, so this uh, is always, so this is obviously what early, very early 2000s, 2003 type of deal. How was intelligence gathered then compared to now? 
Well, one of the, I mean, you know, so you got a variety of different methods for intelligence. You got human sources and signals intelligence. And I, mean, I think one of the things that in general, when you think about these kind of counterterrorism missions, whether it's ones that put boots on the ground, um, like, you know, like I was doing, or even things that involve drones, um, this sort of the, the, the kinetic aspect, whether it's a raid or a strike, is the very end of a very long process of a lot of intelligence collection and analysis um, that, you know, ideally involves human sources, but also airborne surveillance, you know, watching targets, watching people, um, you know, electronic signals, intelligence and, and gathering sort of a whole whole picture, um, you know, what the military talk about is like a pattern of life to try to you know, really illuminate like these networks, these terrorist networks. Okay, this person's talking to this person. This is who they're connected to. Because um, you want to work you up the chain. You don't want to be just going after, you know, the, the low ranking person who's, you know, kind of a courier. You want to be going after the, the people that are actually leading the operation. So how did this end up all leading to becoming an AI individual? Like a person who just got really interested in robotics and what? chip software and all this type of deal and end up writing a book on it all. Yeah. Two right. Books, very, two books. <laughs> very, very different uh, really over the years. Um, certainly what I was uh, doing, you know, kind of kicking doors in the army was not, not very technical at all. Um, well, you yeah. know, I remember actually this, this moment when I was in Iraq in 2007 during the surge there and um, we'd come across an IED uh, which we, we we saw at first, which is the preferred method of, of running into them. Um, and, for, and for people who don't know what that means, that's oh, improvised explosive device. Yeah. Um, yes, I should yeah. have. I got, got sucked into the accident. Roadside bomb. So, um, yeah, so we're driving down the road in Iraq and we, 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 we see this roadside bomb. And so pull over because we see it first before it blows up on you, which is definitely the preferred way of fighting them. And um and then they bring in the the explosive ordnance disposal team, the bomb technicians to defuse the bomb. And so I'd only been in country a couple months and I was very excited about this. I poked my head out the hatch and striker and I'm, I'm waiting to see the person come out in the big bomb suit and go up there and snip the wires. And instead they roll out this little robot and the light bulb went off in my head. I was like, oh, that makes tons of sense. Like have the robot defuse the bomb. Why do you want to be up there with your face in the bomb, like snipping the wires? Like that's, that's a great job for a robot. And then the more I started thinking about it, the more I was like, well, there's a lot of things we're doing that are dangerous. There's a lot of people, ways people are trying to kill us here. Like there'd be a lot of things where we could have robots doing that task and then have the people kind of just, just standing back a little bit um, and let, let people shoot at the robot. And so when I, when I left the army, I took a job at the Pentagon as a civilian policy analyst uh, working in the office of the secretary of defense. And I was working on, um, what the, what the Pentagon calls force development, but you might think of a sort of long-range strategic planning, basically planning out military investments 10, 20, 30 years down the road. Because a lot of the things that the military invests in, you know, have very long lifespans, aircraft, uh, uh, ships, you know, aircraft carriers have a 50-year lifespan. So, you know, the military is thinking strategically about how our technology is evolving, what are we going to need in the future? And this was just, I think, a perspective that stuck with me particularly as we were seeing the technology improve, that I was like, well, how do we how do we capitalize on this technology to create more distance between our service members and threats and protect our people better? Um, and so I worked on some of those issues when I worked in the Pentagon, and I continued that work uh, since then, since I came to, to CNAS. So before that, did you have 
any sort of interest or any sort did you ever dip your toes in to the artificial intelligence sector or the digital sector at all did you have any mindset within it prior to this well my background in college uh was in engineering i was an engineering undergrad my my bachelor's was in physics um through their engineering school and so i had you know sort of a, was interested in technology maybe broadly um but but not i did not really done anything practically speaking um in terms of a job in this space uh maybe the closest thing i did was a was a summer gig working um uh you know, fixing Y2K bugs in computers before before the the 2000 turnover. Um, so so I hadn't done a lot in that space, but it was something that certainly was was of interest. And then as I was working at the Pentagon, it was one of those things where there was just uh, a lot of interest at the time around drones and where that was going next and seeing more autonomy incorporated into drones. Um, and that was a you raised a lot of really tricky policy questions about like, well, how much are we comfortable delegating to these drones? I mean, they're, they're shooting, they got weapons on the war, they're shooting people and things like, are we, are we comfortable with that? And those policy conversations came up in discussions at the Pentagon. And so I was sort of naturally looped into those. Um, and then I think based on also my sort of interest in how do we find ways to use this technology for our advantage, kind of leaned into that space. And then really around 2012, the, the, the deep learning revolution kicked off. And we saw just a lot more interest in AI over the last decade uh, since then. And I've certainly, you know, kind of done more in the time since then. So when you got into the Pentagon, were, was drone technology much of a thing? It had really just started. So, you know, the, the Pentagon certainly didn't go into the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan thinking, oh, robotics is going to be a big thing. Um, frankly, they didn't go into the wars thinking that the wars were going to last that long in the first place. Um, and, and what what I would... What happened was what I would call maybe the accidental robotics revolution, where the Pentagon ended up deploying thousands of air and ground robots, drones up in the air for surveillance, ground robots like the PackBot to go defuse bombs. In the late aughts, so like sort of 2005 to 2009 timeframe, and by the time that I sort of left um, Iraq and did my, my last tour in 2008 and came to the Pentagon then, and right around that time frame, people were sort of waking up to this thing that had occurred and they're trying to figure out, like, what do we do with it? And there were questions about how many drones should we have? Um, you know, they're, the drones themselves are not that expensive, but the people to operate them are expensive. That was one big, big question people were grappling with. Um, and then there was a lot of questions about just where's the technology going in the future? And I think right around that time that the Defense Department started rolling out all these roadmaps to the future, where they had these visions of, okay... Fast forward 20, 30 years, we can have more robots and they're in the air and on the ground and they're at sea and undersea and they're networked together and they're autonomous and they're doing all of these things. Um, and so around that time frame, people sort of started to to realize what the potential here was the technology. Has the training for hand-to-hand -hand combat become a lot more obsolete towards the end of your military career from when you started it? Did you see much of a change there? I mean, I would say not during my time frame. Um, you know, like I was in the Rangers from 2001 to 2005, and then I did a short tour as a civil affairs reservist afterwards, another year and a half after that. Um, and, you know, the, the Rangers, for example, were very into combatives. The Army has a combatives program, which is a sort of modification of Brazilian um, jiu-jitsu. And, uh, you know, the main you, – you can find instances over the last 20 years where – 
soldiers and, and Marines have used been involved in hand-to-hand combat, but it's not like the preferred method of fighting today, right? Um, mm-hmm. Certainly much preferred to see someone in the distance and shoot them way before they get close enough to, to you know, um, be engaged in hand-to-hand combat. And so there's instances where that's been helpful, but a lot of like, the way the Army thinks about it, certainly where the Rangers thought about it, was more about, like, from a psychological conditioning standpoint, training people to be aggressive, to be fighting, um, particularly because jujitsu is is one of the martial arts where you can really go all out um, because it involves ground ground fighting techniques mm. and grappling. Um, and so, you know, the, I think there's this long arc of technological change in warfare that involves new technologies that create more distance with your opponent. Um, you know, evolving from hand-to-hand combat to bows and arrows and um, rifles and intercontinental ballistic missiles um, and probably in the future robotics. And in each of those, the older technologies don't entirely go away. Like we still have bayonets that you can put on rifles, but we're a long ways from the days of the Swiss pikemen when that was like the method of fighting, <laughs> right? Like that's sort of like the backup, right? You, yeah. You're not planning <laughs> to like get the bayonet out. Um, but it doesn't go away. And I think that that's true in other areas too. You know, when we're seeing a similar transition right now in air to air combat with dogfighting, where that's not really the the main method of combat. Um, it's, it's beyond visual range engagements with missiles, uh, but that is a, um, you know, a, a backup technique. And it is something that pilots train on, particularly because it is seen as a sort of crucible of, of air combat, even if it's not the preferred method of fighting. Yeah. That's kind of, um, you touching on that kind of reminds me of the very start of your book, The Four Battlegrounds, where you explain, where you're going into dogfighting. I completely forgot the the system name now, but they had basically human individuals going against an artificial intelligent robot during a dogfighting battle. And the artificial intelligent robot was beating him every single time and was doing a move. I think it was called forward shooting or something or other like that. And that's yeah. a that's a move that's pretty much impossible to do. But in saying that, how well could this be done practically? Like how well could an artificial intelligence be involved in aerial defense like an F1? Even if you take the human out of it as much as you can, I feel like there always has to be somewhat of a human element to it. Yeah, that particular instance was just absolutely wild. And it's something that I um, came across in researching uh, my most recent book, Four Battlegrounds. And there was a DARPA program called Alpha Dogfight. Mm. So taking a page from sort of Alpha Go, where the the you know AI beat the best human in the world in Go, the the Chinese strategy game. And in this case, they trained an AI agent. They did a competition um, to train agents, and then the best agent in the competition went head to head against a human. It just demolished the human, like twelve to zero. And and they were making these these shots that um, you really humans really can't do so they're called forward quarter gunshots that basically happen when the aircraft are they're racing at each other head to head at hundreds of miles an hour and there's this split second where you could get a shot off but it requires superhuman degrees of precision it's very difficult for human to make the shot and so humans don't really try for it they just try to pull in in the six o'clock position behind someone and shoot them from the rear um and what's really fascinating is not only could the ai make the shot that's just really hard for people. I mean, in fact, they ban it in training, interestingly, because for humans to try to do this, it risks a midair collision because hmm. they're trying to line up the aircraft nose to nose. Uh, but of course, the AI can do that without causing a collision. Uh, but even more wild, 
AI learned it entirely on its own. It just, that tactic evolved in simulations when they were having these AI agents try different tactics. So this wasn't and a that machine learning thing. It learned it itself. Yes. It was not programmed in. Is that wild? Jesus. Yeah. I'm trying to wrap my head around that. Wow. I'm trying to wonder how it even figured that out. It's not even programmed. So, I mean, this is, this is exciting. This is where we are now with machine learning. It's, you know, sometimes good, sometimes bad. In this case, what they did is they had um, computer simulations of different AI agents doing dogfighting, and they used a technique called reinforcement learning, mm -hmm. where they give the AI agent a score based on its performance. So you can imagine something similar to like like chess, um, where you know the AI agent makes moves on the board, and then you give it a score whether it's a good move or a bad move, um, and. Um, you know, if it if it got if it got a kill on the other one, it would get a score. If it didn't get shot, it would you know it would get a positive score for that. If it got shot, it would get a negative score. And at first, the AI agent's just doing stuff at random, just just trying different things. And then it begins to learn. Okay, this this is a good thing. This is a bad thing. Kind of similar to how humans do, um, and incorporate that over time. And so the winning agent. Is that what that, are, you, are you trying to imply like morals and ethics, like what's good and what's bad, or are you just talking about what moves they should make that's going to more positively impact them compared to the enemy? Well, it's whatever you program in as the goal. So in okay. principle, you you could use this technique for morals and ethics. I mean, we, we use that for people, right? Where you yeah. you know you, you you got a kid and you oh no you're not supposed to do that or you know don't tell a lie or. Listen to your teacher or something. So, um, so you could use that same technique to try to condition morals into a system. And to some extent, that's what's happening with large language models now. Mm -hmm. So, like large language models like Chat GPT that people interact with have been trained, fine-tuned. So the final method of training is via a method of human feedback from reinforcement learning, where people are giving it a sort of a positive score or negative score based on its output. And so, so for example. Like so it's kind of like when you're training a dog and you trick, every time it does something right, you give it a treat. Exactly. Exactly. And so, and so that's what they've done with these language models is they give it a treat and they say, okay, you know, um, you know, when, when, when you ask it, you say, Hey, um, help me figure out how to make a biological weapon. And the language model says, Oh, I'm sorry. I can't do that. Then there's, Oh, good, good job. Good answer. And they reinforce that. Um, so you can use it to train those kind of moral things. In this case, they were just doing it tactics. They were just trying to do air combat tactics in this DARPA program. Um, but obviously, as we move forward, all these ethical considerations are just really important with AI. So how much of the human element can could you take out of aerial defense in terms of F1 fighting? Not so much drones, because obviously there's always going to be someone controlling the drone, but an F1, how much of the AI system could you have in and how much of the human element could you take out of it? Like, would there always be a pilot? Well, I don't, I don't, I mean, I'm not a pilot, so I might answer differently if I were, <laughs> but I don't think so. Fair enough. I don't think so. I think as long as a caveat, right? I mean, pilots <laughs> might see differently, but, but I don't think so. I think that there's, um, there's a lot of jobs that, that AI is going to transform. Um, I think there's very much a role for humans in lethal decision-making that I do think we want humans um, in the loop deciding where we want to use lethal force, but a lot of the you know the specific tactical maneuvering, whether it's in the air or other things, we can delegate to machines. Machines are probably able to do it faster and better and more accurately. Um, I'll give an example to self-driving cars, 
right? So, you know, the, the goal here um, with self-driving cars, not quite there yet, but is cars that you can get in and there's no steering wheel and it drives itself completely on its own and it's fully autonomous. But you're still choosing the destination, right? You're not going to get in a car and say, car, take me wherever you want. You still have some goal in mind. And I think something similar in the military space where we have humans making higher level planning and, and determining the goals, what is the mission we're trying to accomplish? And machines are helping with that task is probably what we want to get to. Mm. No, I understand. So in your perspective, the pilot's never going to be taken out. But that's fair enough. As you said, a pilot perspective, probably a little bit different. So getting to just warfare in general, how, from your perspective as an army ranger, how autonomous would we go for boots on the ground? I think that we'll, I mean, I think there's certain, again, certain tasks where we would love to get that person out of the way. That's sort of the, 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 you know, the, the thing I'd originally realized when I was down on the ground in Iraq. So um, I'll give you an example. A couple of years ago, there was a, a program by Special Operations Command where they wanted to build a sort of Iron Man suit for an exoskeleton suit, well, it was layered up with armor for their special operators when they were, you know, kicking in doors and going into buildings because it's very dangerous. Um, that to me is, is not, not, not opposed to exoskeletons, but that's a great job for a robot. Send in a drone. It doesn't need to be a walking drone. It could be a flying drone. There's companies working on this. Um, Shield AI is a, is a U.S. company working on small, um, you know, aerial drones that can navigate indoors through buildings um, in, you know, in potentially hazardous environments. And so let the drone go in first and let the drone get shot at. And then you know where the bad guys are and whether they're hostile or not. And then you can send in a drone with a gun or a grenade, you know, to to take care of them and to, to neutralize this threat before people go in. So I think we want to find ways to to create more standoff from threats. Mm. Uh, so, you know, even if we have people in aircraft, for example, kind of quarterbacking the fight, um, to, to use sort of an American football analogy here, you know, we want we want the human supervising and, and maybe synthesizing what's going on, conducting it, but it's robotic aircraft or robotic ground systems that are out in front, really taking that fire, um, um, you know, getting attacked first um, and scouting first. Yeah. So there's always taking that NFL analogy. There's always going to be an audible in other words. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's, that's the thing that I think people are going to be needed for is, you know, you can't script all the stuff out in advance. Um, And, and the machines that we have today, you know, they, they're, they're getting smarter really quick. Uh, the improvements in AI are very impressive, but they often struggle with novel situations that are outside of the scope of their training. And you, that's a, what do you mean by novel situations? Well, like, so here's like a really interesting kind of case was um, an early version of AlphaGo did quite well. But if you change, change the size of the board slightly, its performance mm-hmm. dropped off very dramatically because it wasn't trained on a board of that size. Now, a human Go player could make an adjustment, um, but the machine wasn't trained to do that. Right, um, okay. We we see that with like image classification systems, like image recognition systems. If um, so, if I trained an AI system, or first trained an AI system to recognize Russian tanks, mm-hmm. but there were no images of Russian tanks in the snow, an AI system isn't going to be able to then identify that tank in the snow. It's not in the data set, and so it's going to look at the snow and just be confused. Mm-hmm. Here's a real world example that came up that this was, was wild. So a Dobra program a couple of years ago called Squad X. Yeah. And the goal was to bring in new technologies uh, to help out soldiers and Marines on the ground. So they did a test where they they were training an AI system to detect people walking around. It's really simple. That's it. Just identify this is a person walking. 
So they had these Marines out in this, this training site for a week, walking around, videotaping them, training this AI to identify them. And at the end of the week, the DOPA program manager said, okay, I'm going to turn this around and I want to have you defeat this AI system. And uh, they parked this little robot in the middle of the intersection and they told these Marines they have to go from 300 meters away, they have to get up to it and touch this robot without getting detected. Mm-hmm. And they, eight of them, every single one of them did it in different ways. One of them got underneath a cardboard box and scooted up on a cardboard box. And the AI system didn't detect it because it wasn't designed to detect cardboard boxes movement. Another yeah. person stripped a tree, covered himself in branches, walked up that way, and the AI system didn't see him. Another person somersaulted the whole mm-hmm. way, and it didn't detect him because it wasn't trained for that. And humans would know all of that. They'd be like, there's a person inside the box. I know there's a person in there, right? Person, a human could, could figure that out. And the AI systems, they weren't trained to do that. And so they end up being very narrow and very brittle sometimes. Mm-hmm. So what you're trying to say is everything has to be so precise when it comes to AI. If something's just even a little bit off, it's going to be pretty much thrown into the loop and not know what's going on. So mo- that's right. So most of the systems that we've had over the last decade are a narrow form of intelligence. So they're mm. very good at one thing. They're good at facial recognition or playing um, you know, chess or playing Go. But they don't have the generality of human intelligence. Yeah. And they're not they're not flexible. Whereas a human could do all of these different things. Mm. Now I will say that that systems that we've seen in just the last couple of years, like large language models, are starting to be more general purpose, where they can perform a whole variety of tasks. So large language models like ChatGPT, they can write a poem, um, write a, you know, a, a speech, a toast for a wedding. They can um you know, summarize a document for you and synthesize the main ideas. They can write a marketing email. They can write computer code. They can help conduct scientific experiments. Right. Um, and one model can do all of those things. So we're starting to sort of head in the direction of more general purpose systems. They don't really look like humans, um, but those are going to be, those general purpose systems are going to be much more useful in a whole wide variety of tasks. So how much can we rely on artificial intelligence for warfare if all these little things, like you said, the guy just literally hid in a cardboard box, whereas a human would know, like a human would know, okay, there's a lot of places it can hide here. I'm just going to check these places where the artificial intelligence did not, I shouldn't say think of that, but it did not, didn't fathom it. So how, how could this, how could we continue? Where do we go from here? Like, well, if, I that, think, like if that's its limitation, yeah. where could we go? Well, I think I think it's a that is like the central question, and it's a question that's relevant not just for warfare, but really all different aspects of warfs using AI in our society, in medicine, and and transportation, and, and finance, and other applications in our personal lives. I think a really key thing is we need to better understand the abilities and the limitations of these systems, mm-hmm. um, and that's why I think actually innovations like ChatGPT are great because people can get their hands on these AI systems. You can interact with it. And you could start to get a feel for what it can do and what it's not going to be able to do. You could say, okay, here's where it's capable. Here's what's going to fall apart. Here's ways that it can be tricked and manipulated. And it, it, when we use physical machines today, people understand what their limitations are, right? I can get my car and I can understand that if the check engine light goes on, I need to take the mechanic you know, pretty soon see what's going on. But if the gas gauge is lit up and it's on empty, I need to fill up a gas like real quick. Or it's not going to go very far. And I don't, I'm not an automotive engineer, but I, mean, I understand enough to know how to inter- engage with a car in a way that's 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 safe and going to get me to, you know, where I need to go and get me to do what it wants. Uh, I, I get the car to do what, it, what I need it to do. 
And so I think we need that kind of same engagement with these systems and better understand their failures because they they think differently than people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and oftentimes, you know, things like large language models, they present like a human, but what's under the hood is, is quite different, quite alien. And um, we need to kind of better understand these limitations as we're using them out in the real world. Well, I mean, if you want to talk about um, a- alien, I mean, look, I'm not a big car person myself. I mean, you could show me an engine under the hood and it looks pretty alien to me. But again, like like we were talking, as, as a human, when I look at an engine, I can understand it's an engine. Whereas an AI model, if it's never seen an engine before, it's probably going to have no idea what what the engine is. Right. So getting to your book, uh, the four battlegrounds, four being the key. But can we can we just go over the part one of the four battlegrounds is data. Okay. So could you? unpack what data actually is a little bit to the machine learning aspect. Yeah. So I think maybe to, to set the stage a little bit, um, AI is a general purpose technology with a whole wide variety of applications. And so a lot of people have compared it to something like another industrial revolution, which we saw with prior industrial revolutions led to changes on the global stage. We saw nations rise and fall based on how rapidly they industrialized. But perhaps even more importantly, the Industrial Revolution changed the key metrics of power. So coal and steel production now became key inputs of national power, oil, a geostrategic resource that countries are willing to fight wars over. And so one of the things that I explore in Four Battlegrounds is what are those key inputs of power in an age of artificial intelligence? and who's best positioned to take advantage of them. So data is one of these key areas because machine learning systems are trained on data. That reinforcement learning AI agent that I was talking about that was doing dogfighting was trained on 30 years of simulated aerial combat. So that's data that had to be generated in simulations, um, running computer simulations, and then used to train that agent. Now, data can come from Simulations, it can come from the real world, you know, collecting images or, or pictures, large language models are trained on text data on the internet that's just scooped up and they're trained on, on identifying patterns in that text. Um, one of Google's models, BARD, is trained on, I believe, a trillion words of text. There's a lot of data. Hmm. And so the volume of data for these systems is, is often just massive. And that makes data a key resource in artificial intelligence. So finding ways to get access to data, clean it up, use it effectively, becomes a really important source of strategic advantage for companies and for countries. Because uh, ChatGPT that you brought up before, something I found out about ChatGPT is when you ask it a question, any question, it basically scours the internet for the information. And Here's the thing about the internet. There's a lot of information on the internet, also false information on the internet, also made up information on the internet. So it's kind of like, how do you know what you're getting back is what you need to get back, if that makes sense? Yeah. So what the large language models do is they're trained on a good chunk of text on the internet, of which there is you know, good and bad things, um, and usually like hundreds of gigabytes of data. And they identify patterns and they're trained to simply predict the next word in a sentence and just to predict the next sequence of words. And in fact, in, in tests where they 
you know, give a block of text and then they ask people to predict the next word versus machines, the machines do a better job than humans do of predicting what the next word will be in some sequence of, of text. Um, and so that's kind of the base model. And then the model is fine-tuned with a technique called um, reinforcement learning. So this feedback that people are giving, basically saying good or bad, uh, reinforcement learning with human feedback. So basically the model begins developing answers. Some of them are good, some of them are bad. And then the humans tell it that's a good response, it's a bad response. And those get to score. And then the model learns to, to adapt its responses as a result. Um, so it's really that two-step process of training what's called a foundation model, which is just predicting the next word in the sequence of words or in a sentence. And then fine-tuning with the human feedback saying, well, this is a good response and a bad response to try to get you towards better responses. But like these models still do strange things. I mean, they, they make stuff up. They, um, you know, will potentially sometimes turn hostile to users. I mean, the, the different companies have different versions of these models. Um, the you know, famously Microsoft version um, of Bing Chat earlier, you know, last year had in a conversation with the New York Times reporter, tried to convince this reporter to leave his wife and run off with this AI model. <laughs> um, it's just like so weird, right? Stranger and, things have happened. Stranger things. But, you know, it's like, why is it doing this? Well, because there's a bunch of crazy stuff on the internet, right? And it's just, it's just, it's not copying and pasting, really. What it's doing is it's it's absorbed these ideas and it's it's extrapolated from them and it's generalizing to some extent. But if you sort of start a conversation that kind of looks like a weird chat, it'll just continue that conversation. It'll just keep going. So the individual who was trying to be convinced to leave his wife would he had to have initiate some sort of conversation that's alluding to a relationship before it would have even started a conversation like that? Not necessarily. Um, although, you know, there is something that's kind of instigating it in that, in that direction. Um, part of it is, and, and people have, have you know continued to put better safeguards on these systems now, but um, early ones did not have a, a very long, and what's called a context window for sort of looking back in the conversation. Mm -hmm. So like you and I can remember the start of this conversation and that it plays a relevant context to whatever we're talking about now, right? And you and I could make a reference something that started at the beginning of the podcast and, and we would get it and the listeners would get it. Um, but the AI is a little bit like the, the character in the movie Memento really remembers like the last, you know, uh, like two minutes or something, and then beyond that doesn't have doesn't have good memory, and so always living in the moment. So at the time, if you if the conversation goes on long enough, the AI sort of loses its grounding in who it's supposed to be and the guidance it was originally given. So that's one factor. Another one is that sort of if you if you get into a certain kind of conversation, it'll continue that. So in this case, for whatever reason, it sort of took it in this romantic direction. But if you got into like an argument with it. It'll just continue the argument. Um, again, now the models that are out there today have been improved upon and they're a little bit safer than some of the first versions. Um, but but fundamentally, you know, a lot of those problems still exist under the hood. Well, I think even if we were to take a human element to that, let's just say you went for a long drive, not even a long drive, a half an hour drive. Can you remember the road that you drove? Can you remember the things that you've seen? I mean... To me, that's the kind of analogy for it. I mean, yeah, the machine 
in terms of a conversation might be pretty straightforward. Like you give it a topic, it'll talk about the topic, but trying to veer off into a different topic, it's a bit harder. Okay. I mean, you can, but then the topic before just almost becomes forgotten. The same with us when it comes to driving on a road. I can remember where I started and where I'm finishing, but you ask me about the in-between, I'm probably not going to remember. If someone said to me, do you remember that big red truck that we passed? I'm probably not going to remember a big red truck. Yeah. Yeah. So these systems have, you know, they're, they're, they're capable in some ways, but they have a lot of limitations in others. Uh, they're getting better. So some of these flaws that I'm talking about are, are improving over time and people are correcting them. Um, but, but they are in some ways, you know, still quite limited. So when it's scouring stuff for the internet, for its answers, the internet is a very convoluted place when it comes to conversations and subject topics. Is there a way humans can integrate something where it can differentiate from, okay, this topic's just about false information and this is the topic that I'm really trying to divest information from? Or will it always just scour for whatever? Well, I want I want to correct a misperception, which is the models are not necessarily scouring the internet for information. So some models are connected to the internet, and they can do that. They have that ability. Some some don't. But the base model of these large language models, they don't need to go to the internet to generate text. Okay. Now they might be better at at generating useful text if they can do that, right? So if you said, you know, um, especially if you're asking about the news or facts, you know, if it's connected to the internet and it can go to the internet and can query something and get information, it's probably going to give you better information. But that's not how they generate text. What they do is they've essentially trained on text of the internet. And then a model has sort of extrapolated to some higher order kind of concepts that are behind that, that then when you query the model, it's responding according to the kind of things that it had seen on the internet. Again, some of which is good, some of which is bad. So if you, if you, you know, start the conversation in a way that, that is going to Again, it'll have, that kind of, it'll have whatever the conversation you started, right? So if you push it into a corner of the internet that's sort of like dark and weird, that's kind of the response you're going to get back. Hmm. So when it comes to warfare and feeding data information, how how is data collected in terms of military? So if we wanted to feed it to say on the boots, on the ground data, how is this all recorded? Is this all recorded, let's just say a soldier is wearing some particular suit during training and then they do practice runs of situations that can happen and they feed it that? Is that the kind of deal what happens? Well, it's a huge problem for the military, which is that you need the data to train these AI systems. And oftentimes the data doesn't exist. And you have to you have to, you have to create the data. You have to record it some way. Um, and the data itself has to be clean and, and useful in some way. So if you look at like self-driving cars, for example, you know, self-driving car companies have mapped the environment down to the centimeter and they know the height of the curb and they know where the stop sign, the stoplights are going to be and stop signs and, and everything else. Well, in a wartime environment, that might not exist. I mean, for one, you're not going to necessarily know where you're going to fight a war and things are going to be destroyed. GPS might or might not be functioning. Um, and so, you know, like that, let's say you had a, had a map of, you know, uh, Ukraine or Gaza. Now they're war zones, things are destroyed. And so that's like, a real particular challenge in the military space um, you know, for something just simple like navigating, much less for other things for like say some tactical behavior, you got to find a way to either record that data of people doing it or generate it in simulations to then feed it into the machine learning system. 
And how many situations? I'm guessing there's like thousands of types of situations that could actually happen. So to actually kind of gather that type of data, it's I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's improbable. That's right. That's right. And you know, and in particular, war is a is a competitive adversarial place where the enemy is going to be trying to find ways to exploit any loopholes in your rules. They're going to be finding ways to to come up with clever and new tactics. Um, and so like hiding in a cardboard box, like hiding in a cardboard box, right? And so, I mean, I think that's that's a real challenge for AI today. Well, I mean, if you were to take it on a smaller scale, uh, not going into the Ukraine exploit, let's just take roadworks where they dig up a road and now there's like they're, they're leveling things, but and you're using navigation, but the AI still thinks it can go that way, but the construction only happened started happening yesterday. You know what I mean? If you were to take a self-driving car. So what, does that mean the self-driving car is now going to try and go this way, but it can't? Does that make sense what I'm trying to say here? Yeah. So for self-driving cars, like I, I don't know exactly how they program these, but certainly, you know, the nice thing about construction is there's ample data of construction sites on the roads. I mean, right? You see construction everywhere on the roads when you're driving around. That gets recorded and captured in these autonomous vehicles. And so even if we don't know where the construction is going to be, construction uses standardized kinds of signs and colors and, and markers that the AI can be trained to identify to say, okay, these signs and symbols are associated with construction, and then it can be trained the right kinds of behaviors. And for self-driving cars, not only do they have um, cars that come from driving in the real world or data from driving in the real world, they also supplement that with simulations. So they, you know, they have simulations that they could do. So if they run into a situation in the real world, they can then capture that data. They can run it in simulation at different times of day where there's different lighting conditions, different weather conditions. Um, they can they can do things to vary it to try to make that um, AI system more robust to different kinds of changes. The things that maybe we haven't seen in the real world yet, but we could anticipate. But there's always going to be some some set of what people call edge cases, things that like oh we didn't we didn't think about that we didn't know that that could happen, um, and that is a place where oftentimes AI systems fail. And I think the problem with that is you're always going to get the people who will point out and be like oh look see it's useless I might as well just go back to driving my diesel car or something like that I'm better off. Whereas, I mean. Look, you go back to the early stages of cars. We had no power steering. There were no suspension. I mean, the car was basically just an accident waiting to happen. So all these things are just trial and error. But if we were to come back to data again and think more about surveillance. Now, face, uh, facial recognition surveillance is something that's huge in China. And I think really in the Western world, the only... The only thing that I can think of we have is like facial recognition to unlock your phone. Okay. Now this is something you do speak about in your book a little bit where we do have a strong weakness here in the United States and in the Western world, I should say, whereas China are far ahead of us in that aspect. Do you think there is a way we could catch up without, without interfering with peace with people's privacy or do you think that's just always going to be the case where china's going to be ahead well i don't think it's true that china's ahead overall i think in this narrow space of facial recognition it is certainly true because china has um 
widespread deployment of surveillance cameras uh, within the country. A lot of them use AI, like facial recognition. And we've seen, of course, a, a backlash in many democratic countries against using facial recognition for public surveillance. Um, and there's different approaches, different approaches in the United States and Australia and the UK and the EU. Um, you know, I, I certainly, as just a, you know, as a citizen, as a, as a person, you know, I don't want to live in a, a place where we have a surveillance state where every single step that people take is monitored. Um, and I think that there is an effect there where the technology gets for facial recognition gets matured faster in China because they're collecting that data, but they're using it out in the real world. There's government investment in that space in a way that there might not be in democratic countries. Um, again, I don't think that's true across the board. It's interestingly, it's different in large language models where there's a lot of hesitation in China because of concerns about censorship. And the censors mm -hmm. don't want some AI model out there on social media that says something says something weird and then says something against the government or against the Chinese Communist Party. Um, so I think, you know, we need to find ways to, to move forward smartly with the technology, uh, but then it's consistent with our values. Do we currently have any trade agreements with China in terms of AI and technological advancements. I'm not too sure if we currently do, even if it's just down to software chips. Well, there's a lot of trade and partnership, um, certainly between the US and China on AI. There's a lot of academic partnerships and relationships. Um, we've seen that you know the, the default setting is really openness and collaboration. And so there's been a tremendous amount of that. Um, the US government has more recently in the last couple of years started to put some guardrails in place uh, particularly around chips. And right now, some of the more advanced chips that are used for machine learning are banned for export to China, even if those chips are made outside the U.S. because they're made using U.S. technology. Uh, but, you know, for a lot of, uh, and there are certain entities that, that U.S. Uh, companies, universities might be prohibited from cooperating with. And the U.S. government has been more proactive in doing that. One's tied to the Chinese military, to human rights abuses. But in general, the default setting is that that cooperation is, you know, totally, totally allowed. And there's quite a bit of it happening. Because if there is cooperation and the trade the trade agreements that they have, and there's the technology that they're swapping, China could be using that technology for their facial recognition. So is there some sort of ethical line that the United States should kind of draw in that aspect? I think there is. And we've started to see moves by the U.S. government to do that. Um, I think some of them involve end users. So entities that, you know, for example, if a company has, as we know, they're committing human rights abuses. What the U.S. government has been doing is putting them on a list called an entity list saying you can't work with this company. Some of them involve um, end uses. So not the entities, but the sort of applications um, and I think that's true for military use and for human rights abuses, telling companies, look, regardless of who you're working with, you can't do these kinds of things um, in China, right? You can't aid the Chinese government in imprisoning, uh, you know, its Uyghur population that we know is, you know, mass imprisoned in, in Xinjiang. We can't, you can't aid them in massive sort of public surveillance. Um, and then there are certain technologies where the technology itself, like the chips for advanced chips, we say are controlled and, and not permitted to China. The, and I'm going to have to um, uh, head to another thing in a, in a, in a minute, um, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Look, that's perfectly fine. I'll just ask you one more question before we head off. I got 
a thousand more questions for you, but I'll yeah. just ask one more. It sort of sprung on me last night. Um, I was on social media and there was a lot of photos of the Pope, which looked like he was in a nightclub. Now, this is obviously just yeah. disinformation, but you got misinformation, disinformation. It's kind of becoming harder and harder to subjectively identify what's true and what's false these days. And then that kind of builds a trust issue between individuals. Is there a way around this moving forward with AI or is it always going to become a thing or is it just going to get worse? So I think it's going to get worse and there are solutions, but we have to be proactive about doing them. Um, you know, at the technical level, AI generated fakes are getting better and better and better. And they're really already at the point where they're, they're so I think for mostly people kind of indistinguishable with reality. That's certainly true for audio and for still images. Video has a little has a ways to go still. Um, and text is really good. And so we're going to need better technical tools and policy tools to help manage that world where AI can generate fakes that are very realistic. Well, what do those look like? Um, some of them involve better detectors. So AI-based tools that can detect this is real, this is fake. Those are valuable. I think we want to see more of those being produced. In the long run, the fakes will win because the fakes will get better and better and better until they're distinguishable, indistinguishable from reality, not just with people, but with the, the detectors as well. And so I think, you know, detectors are a tool in our toolkit, but they're not going to be the final solution. Um, watermarking is another technical solution. So it's a, it's a sort of hidden um, way that people can embed things into images or to audio so that um, a, if the company knows what they're looking for, they can say, yep, this was generated with our tool. Um, now, that's going to be good for legitimate actors, but not for illegitimate ones. And at least tools are publicly available enough that, that you know, bad actors, criminals um, will have the ability to, to use them. Um, there's going to be legal, I think, requirements or policies, things like a bot disclosure law or what is sometimes called a Blade Runner law, which I, I love the term. Basically that when you're talking to a bot, it has to tell you that it's a bot, which, you know, you didn't have to do a couple of years ago because you could tell. Um, but now they're getting good enough that you're not going to be able to tell, right? So if you pick up a phone and you call, you know, a company and you're talking to their help desk, you know, I think it's reasonable to know whether you're talking to a human or not. Um, and so, so a, you know, law requiring, California has a law in the books now requiring that companies disclose that. Um, and then there's other tools, similar tools for like genuine media, images, um, video, audio, tools that can be embedded, uh, technical solutions to prove provenance. So if you take a photograph, we can show a chain of custody of that photograph and show this is a real photograph of a place that happened in the real world on this date and this place um, so that so that we can prove that it's real. And I think those, those things are all solvable, but it's going to take a concerted effort by society and something we really need to invest in because these these AI tools are they're getting really good. Well, Paul, hey, uh, I thank you very much for coming on the podcast. And anyone who's listening to the podcast, I do recommend your book, Four Battlegrounds. Uh, I think it's a great book and it it does blow my mind um yeah thank you for coming on and if you have any social media or any articles people can sort of read or follow you on would you like to just quickly plug it 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so first of all, thanks uh, for having me on. And if people are interested, um, they should definitely check out my book for battlegrounds power in the age of artificial intelligence. It's available everywhere books are sold. Um, and it's in, you know, hard copy and, um, ebook format and audiobook format and then i'm on twitter yourself? did you rate What's it yourself that? did you rate it for the audio did you rate it no no it's oh, not me we have a professional okay. we have a professional okay. uh audiobook narrator he's got a great audiobook narrator voice that uh that i i can't compete with yeah um and and i'm on twitter at paul uh shari s-c-h-a-r-r-e if people want to want to follow me there Cool. Hey, Paul, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, yeah, thank you. We'll talk again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed the discussion. Cheers.